0: How's it going, folks, and welcome to Found Flicks. On this Inning Explained, we're looking at predestination. In this time twisting thriller, we follow a temporal agent as he embarks on a final time traveling assignment to prevent a criminal from launching an attack that kills thousands of people. I've been a big fan of this one since it came out, mainly because of the absolutely bonkers story that unfolds, and it goes into directions that you can't possibly see coming. It's a very intriguing and unique take on time travel itself that makes it more about piecemealing out bits of the story thanks to the time-hopping elements. The story is an adaptation of sci-fi master Robert Heinlein's All You Zombies, and the biggest surprises and twists are straight from the original work, impressively from all the way back in 1945. Now, this isn't the most action-packed adventure. It's much more dialogue-heavy and cerebral, but definitely keeps things interesting enough to keep us constantly on our toes. It's also anchored by excellent performances. Hawk is always good. That's right, more Ethan Hawk for you. You're welcome. But for me, it's Sarah Snook that really does the heavy lifting here, playing multiple versions of the same character. For any Succession fans out there, it's awesome seeing her inhabiting a very different kind of role here. Now, the story itself is quite complex, and it leaves us with many questions about what goes down and how what happens exactly. And that is what we are here to dig into today. So let's check out Predestination, breaking down these stories' many twists, looking at just how time travel works in this universe, and explaining the ending. Can we truly change the past, or are things inevitable? A gravelly voice presents us with a serious question. What if I could put him in front of you, the man who ruined your life? He guarantees they would get away with it, which then begs the question, would you kill him if you were presented the chance? Amongst the bustling main floor, A guy carrying a briefcase and violin bag appears in a hurry. He ducks off into a stairwell and comes to a sort of boiler room. He removes a tarp, revealing a timer. He places the violin case on the ground and activates it, causing it to change shape and tubes appear from within. They start to remove some pieces and are distracted by a noise behind them. They pull out a gun and cautiously scope out the room. A shadow slinks by and they both open fire, trading shots. They grab the clicking timer as it counts down to zero and stuff it into the box, but it's a moment too late. It explodes and completely burns up the entire person's body. The attacker approaches and hands over the violin and walks away. They yell and mash the buttons and then see the aftermath of the burns, their entire body covered in bandages. He looks in distress at his body and angrily launches the table away. Two suits come in to give him an award, apparently his second Blackmore Cross. They're told that he has served honorably and it sounds like his employment is coming to an end. That's it, right? He wants to know. They explain that they're waiting for the order. Yes, the final orders. What about the bomber? And the guys both exchange glances before informing him that's not his problem anymore. They stress the importance of his final upcoming mission and leave him to rest. The so-called Violin Man fills us in on his longtime adversary, a murderous bomber known as the Fizzle Bomber. We see several of his various attacks over the years, and at least this time he was able to stop him. He has one big bombing that really changes everything. In March 1975, his explosion leveled several blocks of New York and claimed 11,000 lives. They haven't been able to stop him yet, but he believes that with every step they take, they're getting closer to finally catching him. Now he only has one more try. With the doctor, it seems his wounds have healed, but reminds him that he will look physically different than what he's used to. He knows that him being decommissioned is what comes next, but the doc points out it's not just the physical injuries he sustained, but he's logged more field hours than any other agent. There are real risks with so many jumps. It looks like some of these side effects are already trickling in for the agent, seeing on his assessment notes of early stages of psychosis, mood swings, and bouts of depression. His vocal cords were a as well, and they won't ever come back the same way either. He gets a closer look at his new face and struggles to take in his appearance. While rubbing a finger along the scar, he doubts that even his own mother would recognize him now. He opens a drawer full of tape recorders and starts to narrate to someone. His orders came through today, which he knew was inevitable. By the time they hear this recording, seven years will have passed. They're just starting their first mission, with each being more important than the last, each getting us one step closer to our final destination. He takes an oath to abide by the Council's rules, and any diversion from the parameters results in death by lethal injection. Ooh, pretty serious. They hand him over two revolvers, along with a fancy watch to track his point in time, along with his beat-up violin case. He muses on how time catches up to us in this line of work, calling them gifted, but then feels that sounds perhaps a bit arrogant, settling on that they were born for this job. We pick up at a dingy bar in 1970, where the nameless agent now works as a barkeep. Another patron, obscured in shadow, orders a drink and barks at him to leave the bottle he scoffs that it doesn't look like they're celebrating and they emerge from the darkness sneering what do I look like all right things do get a bit complicated here because Snook is never given a name and is credited as unmarried mother technically here she is playing John so let's go with that to avoid confusion same goes for the agent he never gets a name so let's just call him Jack Jack John and Jane right that's not complicated at all he tries to downplay that he was just making conversation and reveals that he's new here it's been quiet thanks to fear surrounding the big bad fizzle bomber but John isn't one to live their life in fear what good is worrying about every freak on the subway he seems a bit prickly and takes offense when pointing out that he hasn't seen him around here before jack says he was just joking but he didn't find it funny asking him to tell a better one jack shrugs that he's terrible at jokes and throws out some absolute clunkers what about this one what comes first the chicken or the egg The rooster, he smirks to John's disappointment. That the best you got? Important thing though, paradox, which comes first. John divulges that he writes confession stories for a living and has a weekly column called The Unmarried Mother. To his surprise, Jack is a regular reader of their work, which is not his typical demographic. Jack is impressed by it. They are able to really capture insight into the feminine mind. As for the explanation behind the name, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and John lays out a bet for the rest of the bottle in exchange for the best story he's ever heard. He agrees to a full bottle instead, and if he loses, just add an extra 20 as a tip. On the news, there's more mentions of a recent Fizzle Bomber attack. John hates the name, he says, as it makes it sound like his bombs don't cause real damage. He does admit there are a lot of selfish a-holes out there in the world that perhaps deserve to die for the greater good. Jack stops that line of thinking in its tracks. He could get in trouble for saying stuff like that. Then it's story time, which all began back when he was a little girl. Wait a minute. Jack is a bit confused, but puts together that they must have had a sex change. Back in 1945 as a newborn she was left on the doorsteps of an orphanage and is determined by a doctor to be in good health so there was no need to take her to a hospital and is then given the name Jane. She was never sick as a kid so she was never taken to a hospital until much later in life. We'll see the ramifications of that later. She soon grew an affinity for space and dreamed of being an astronaut but what she longed for even more were parents of her own. In a daze she wonders what it would be like and almost gets creamed by a car when watching a family. She reactively punches out the guy's headlight and the Marm pulls her away. She never understood why her parents abandoned her, but knew as she got older there was something different about her. She never really fit in, and got into fights all the time, but was at least able to easily best the bullies, noting that she was even stronger than the boys. She was smart as a whip too, always at the top of her class, but never got the one thing she wanted, to be adopted. Because according to her, she was a freak and a loser. And this caused her to shun her appearance and never look in the mirror, as she hated what she saw there so much. At this point in her life, she says she doesn't even remember what she looked like back then. Jack smiles that he looks better than he does, but John points out the reality of the kind of girls that people generally want. Gold-haired morons that grow up to be some boy's perfect accessories, and that simply is not who she is. One day, it appeared that her intellect was finally being recognized when a Mr. Robertson shows up at graduation with an offer to try out for a new government organization. He's heard that she's interested in space travel, but she knows at the time, women were not allowed to be astronauts. Regardless, she's just the candidate that he's looking for, showing great promise in math and science as well as physical attributes, and hands over a pamphlet for the ominously named Space Corps. Around that time, she says, studies determined that they could not send men to space for months or years without <coughs> attention, so they decided to seek out some women to join the Space Boys. She said they were looking for easily manipulated virgin types, smart and emotionally stable, but most of the candidates were hookers or neurotics that would crack up in an instant after being off Earth. In her mind, they were nothing special. A little bit of a superiority complex there, Aj. Eh, in the interview, the guy tells her to not get Get too overwhelmed. Some girls got lost in thought. To which she smirks, maybe having a thought is uncharted territory for them. He doesn't appreciate the joke, and she quickly falls back in line. She's willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill her dream of space travel. And at work, she does get approved. She went on to be taught how to walk and dance, and even more importantly, how to pleasingly talk to a man. Hey there, bike boy. Yeah, what does that mean? She's put through a trial with several other girls donned in VRS helmets to simulate going through space. The entire time, Jane has a look of childlike glee, but it is too much for others, and one girl tosses her cookies. As for physical endurance, they are lined up on treadmills, and she winds up far outlasting the others, still going strong after over two hours straight. Woo-wee! Ever since she was younger, the idea of sex seems strange and foreign to her, and she had never been with a man. She's asked how often she thinks about sex, and she fibs occasionally, before correcting herself to say often. These tests went on for months, all under Robertson's watchful eye. A guy brings him a report on Jane's performance. She has the high numbers they've ever seen! She's asked another question, do you ever feel sad? Jane admits to sometimes feeling out of balance, as though she's in the wrong body, and it doesn't help that none of the girls like her. We see this in action via another fight that she handily wins. With that, she is unceremoniously kicked out of the program, but Robertson pledges to do whatever he can to get her reinstated, asking to trust him. Since she was kicked out, Jane was forced to figure out things on her own, and got a thankless job working as a mother's helper. It's here that she first discovered confession stories she didn't care if they were real or not they were thrilling she continued working and went to school at night as well as taking charm classes to appease the space corp appeal board it was the first time that she wasn't good at something but then her life went in a whole other direction that's when she met him outside of class she bumps into someone asking if they're lost he grumbles that he's waiting for someone and jane says well you know what they say about how good things come to those who wait to her shock the guy replies but only things left behind by those who hustle she can't believe it it's an abraham lincoln quote jane smiles as she was thinking the same thing and it seems the two were an instant match we don't see their face however she describes him as handsome and rich and treated her with a kindness never seen before jack assumes that it was all for show but jane or john insists that he was different the first man that ever treated her with kindness she was young and in love and asked jack if he'd ever done something stupid for love once he sighs while setting up the pool game she never thought she would fall in love like that and these were the happiest times of her life until it all came to a screeching halt. One night, he sat her down and said that he would be back in a moment, but then nothing. She never saw him again. She tried to understand why he would leave, but instead funneled this energy into trying even harder to rejoin Space Corp. She reunites with Robertson, who explains a bit of the real work they're doing here. It's a secret organization whose primary purpose is not space travel, but reshaping wrongdoings. They use Space Corp as a kind of recruitment center, looking for people like her with extraordinary abilities, but also without any families or past. And with that, she is brought on board again, and hopeful in her future again, even if she didn't know exactly what the job entailed. Yet she was thwarted from her dreams once more, as she learned the mystery man left her with a bun in the oven. So she was disqualified, and went to work at a hospital until she was due. Then one night, she woke up in immense pain and passes out. She comes to later, and learns that she had a healthy little baby girl. She was pleased with the accomplishment of creating a baby, and remembers that she was going to make sure to put Mrs. on the forms, no or Orphanage for her kid. Then things took another surprising turn as during the delivery the doctor made another discovery. He brings up a Scottish physician that lived as a female until 35 and then had surgery to legally become a man. They went on to get married and everything was hunky-dory but Jane does not see what that has to do with her. Well when she was going through birth they found something unique one of a kind as she actually bears both male and female organs. Both are immature but the female parts were developed enough to be able to have a baby. Due to excessive bleeding they were forced to to perform a hysterectomy yet through reconstruction they were able to create a male urinary tract jane can't believe this twist of fate so now she's supposed to become a man thinking it's some kind of sick joke but the doctor tries to say it's not all bad her young bones will readjust it's not like a death sentence her or uh, his life can now continue she cradles the baby cooing that it's the best thing that's happened to her and thinks of naming her jane after her mother she considered it a way to keep the name in the family since she would soon have to change hers she became even more determined to do everything she could for the baby, but it was all for naught. As a few weeks later, the baby was snatched right out of the nursery. A man in black gloves and trench coat enters, but they have no real description of him. His face could be shaped like yours or mine, or even could have been the baby's father. She tried everything to find baby Jane, but turned up nothing. It was as though she had vanished. Then the focus shifted to going back under the knife, and over nearly a year had three major operations. They also took testosterone to deepen their voice, but additionally did some practicing to sound more like a man. The difficulty of the transition has clearly gotten to them, starting to get emotional when saying, my name is Jane. Similar to before, they were too afraid to see what they looked like in the mirror, and held off as long as possible, but eventually had to confront their new appearance. To Jane, it didn't matter anymore, as they were no longer their former self in any real way. The person they knew was gone for good. The strange thing was every time they took in their new look, it reminded them of the bastard that took their life. Some kind of messed up irony as they chalk it up. Jack says they seem to came out okay. You know, like a normal man to him. John reveals that he's more man than ever, actually, as he's no longer shooting blanks. The doctors have deemed him now a totally fertile male specimen. Jack congratulates him and formally welcomes him to the tribe. John starts getting all fatalistic again, saying the world deserves a shitstorm sometimes and everyone just uses everyone to get what they want. Jack considers maybe, maybe not. Jane, now John, continued to struggle with her new identity, but not basic things like which bathroom to use, but how could he live? What job could he get? John, John squarely places the downfall on his mysterious lover. He hates the bastard for ruining his life and truly believes he deserves to die. He once more tried to enlist at Space Corps, even though he knew it would not pan out. He was that desperate for a way back in. He'd been called a freak his whole life, and now he really was. Just a lab rat to be experimented on. Jack tries to be sympathetic, but he doesn't buy it. And even if he's sincere, doesn't want any more sorries. Well then, what do you want, Jack inquires? Love? No, John is on a search for a purpose. He proposes that love can be a purpose, but John thinks it's much easier to destroy something, kill somebody. He wonders if he could really do that. Maybe John shrugs, and he can see the look in his eyes, a bitterness that can take over to which Jack can relate. He officially changed his name and moved to New York City, getting a new, pretty ramshackle-looking apartment. He got a job as a fry cook and bought a typewriter to work as a stenographer. The job was a wash, but one story did sell despite it being terrible. This birthed the idea of the unmarried mother column, and now that connects to what Jack noted earlier. Exactly how John can't seem so authentic with a mother's story, he is one himself. Ah, you know what I mean. That's it for the story, which Jack does deem worthy of the bottle. The man that ruined his life and his daughter are both ghosts. But sometimes you gotta let stuff go. He's asked if he has, and he quickly replies, fuck no. Then Jack asks the same question from the opening. What if I could put him in front of you? The man that ruined your life. And guarantee you'd get away with it. Would you do it? Without hesitation, John responds in a heartbeat. He then shockingly reveals that he knows where the man is, and John calls it BS, but Jack says he was able to follow a paper trail of records all the way back to the lady from the orphanage. John accuses him of following him and being a cop or something, and he wants more offers to put the guy in his lap, and then you can do whatever you want with him. Okay, where is he then? John demands, but it won't be so simple. There's something Jack needs done for him first. He wants him to try out his job. And now he's not talking about bartending. It's time to put all of his many unrealized skills to good use for once. John is at least curious, and he invites him down to the basement, saying that Robertson is better at explaining all this stuff. He can't believe Jack is actually working for his secret little organization and wants to know what it is he does exactly. He smirks that he's just going to have to trust him and always bristly John says, you must be drunk or something, don't mess with me. Jack jokes, what, you think I'm the bomber or something? And accuses that he very well could be too. He goes Jod to follow along and starts singing a song about I am my own grandpa on the way downstairs. Hmm. He guides him to an office and puts a serious lock on the door. He's confused by what is going on, but Jack focuses on the matter at hand. Killing someone isn't easy, no matter how much anger and hate is in your heart. It's different when it's time to pull the trigger. John asks if he's speaking from experience, and he says it's simply the truth. He's confident that in that moment, he will not hesitate, no matter what. Jack retrieves his violin case, which is actually a USFF coordinates transformer kit. Luckily, it takes some hassle out of time travel, such as calculating a discrete arrival location and avoiding any material collisions. Ooh, that's convenient. He describes it as a device that creates a temporal wake, or as is better known, a time machine. John scoffs, you gotta be kidding, but he assures him he is not. He gets the two guns at the ready, and instructs John to get closer to the device. He's still not comprehending what's happening, and he tells him to grab the case and close his eyes. They both blip away in an instant, and appear in another room. Both seem physically affected by the jump, and Jack informs his new protege, the first few times will really knock you around. According to his watch, they are back in Ohio in 1963. John is overwhelmed, but there's more stressing matters. In this job, you can't afford to make mistakes, and timing is essential. He hands over a wad of cash, saying that the Temporal Bureau doesn't care how much money they spend. So go nuts, I guess. He inquires about Robertson, and Jack tells him that he is in 1985 at their headquarters. He still doesn't get it. Is he a cop or what? He clarifies he's a temporal agent. He's one of 11. All tasked with preventing crime before it takes place. There's clothes waiting for them, and John is confused how he knew about it, but it's brushed off as inconsequential. They just have to blend in. There's more rules to keep in mind. Importantly, their time disruption footprint has to be small. Any deviation will result in termination, not getting fired, but fired from life. So keep conversations with others from this time to a minimum. As far as how wide the range of time travel is, it's only safe to go 53 years before or after the zero point, the moment that time travel was invented in 1981. Yeah, try and keep up here, newbie. Yeah, Come on. John appears overwhelmed yet intrigued. He gets to be a temporal agent. If you prove yourself you do, they're after someone they suspect is the fizzle bomber. If he kills him, Jack promises to take him to Robertson, who will show him everything. John agrees, wanting to know where the guy is. He's at Cleveland College and is just about to meet Jane. Yes, the 1963 version of themselves. John is amazed. He actually has a chance to change his past. Yes, you do, Jack says, but as for changing his own, he only grumbles that he never deviates from the mission. He drops him off at the school, but assures John he will be around. So now he no longer has a choice, but Jack counters that we always do. He then wonders that perhaps some things are inevitable, which Jack says has crossed his mind. John asks about the life of an agent. Sure, it's lonely and you have no family, but what you do have is purpose, which has eluded John his whole life. Now a word from this week's sponsor, Every Plate. There's tons of different meal kits out there nowadays, but what sets Every Plate apart is its savings. I thought meal kits would be too expensive, but now I know you can definitely get the same tastiness and quality at a much lower price. And you can get your first box for just $1.49 a meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code ending 149. As we know, the food price is grocery stores are on the rise, and luckily every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. It's also great because all the ingredients come pre-portioned to help you save money and reduce food waste. You know, instead of buying a bunch of asparagus only to toss most of it away, they give you exactly what you need every time. Not only is it affordable, but it's delicious too. With recipes like caramelized onion burgers or Italian sausage gnocchi bake, it's easier than ever to try something new. They also have a wide variety of options for everybody in the family, including classic plate, veggie plate, family plate, and easy plate, so there's tons of options out there. Get started with EveryPlate for just $1.49 per meal on your first box by going to everyplate.com and entering code ending 149. The school bell rings, and the class empties out along with Jane stepping out into the pouring rain. Now seeing the other side of that earlier scene where she first met her love, uh uh-oh, it's John that she surprisingly bumps into, and they have their Lincoln based conversation. He spins around to take in Jane. As she smiles, she was just thinking the same thing what are the odds john smirks john looks her over saying it's not how he imagined she'd look again remember he completely disconnected from his former self and didn't even remember what she looked like jane is confused do i know you and john calls her beautiful someone should have told you the whole encounter being watched by jack from afar so now we know the man that jane fell in love with that left her later is actually her male counterpart from the future getting pretty nutty around here and this appears to have all been orchestrated from the start as the agent sets out for more time travel shenanigans seeing his Case is set for 1970, presumably his last chance to catch the bomber. We recognize his destination as the same boiler kind of room from the beginning, now seeing this scene from the other side as well. He comes to someone fiddling with a bomb, and notice they have long hair under their hat. Metal clatters, and they launch into gunplay. Jack loses him, and his opponent gets the jump on him, jamming his gun in the back of his head. He outmaneuvers him, and they start to pummel the hell out of each other, actually appearing pretty evenly matched. Jack in the end is overpowered and knocked unconscious. He groans back to his feet, hearing an explosion and crack electricity. He comes out to the other person, assumingly an agent from the opening, who was able to isolate the bomb, but is now burning alive. We now know there were three people in the scene, Jack, this agent, and the fizzle bomber with the long hair and beard. And when they look up to him, it sure looks like it's Snook under the birds, Not Ethan, that's what I'm saying. They frantically set the coordinates to 1992 and blip away. Jack sighs, picking up a chip that survived the explosion, and grabs his own case, setting it to 64. He hobbles into an apartment, and is frustrated with losing the bomber once more and what could be the final time he has been outwitted for good. We flash to the person waking up after the explosion, and hear a replaying of their conversation about some things perhaps being inevitable. He clicks on the tape recorder, and Jack narrates that time travel can be disorienting. Even short jumps can knock you around. Remember to never exceed the jump limits, and always take deep breaths. They help! Meanwhile, John and Jane get to know each other a little better, or really, John shows that he knows intimate details about Jane somehow, like how she keeps people at arm's length because she thinks she's superior to them. Jack continues on with a reminder to get a hat and coat. It's cold that time of year and 64. And just as he requested, the clothes are there waiting for him. Jane is understandably offended by his assumptions. He doesn't even know her. But John poses the question, is he wrong? Of course he's not. He knows himself all too well. She squints, acknowledging that it takes one to know one. She then asks what makes him so superior, and he declares that he can read minds. As for what she's thinking, he says that her charm class is not helping this situation. Wow, I mean, she responds sarcastically and he says the real thing on her mind why does everyone get what they want but she gets nothing you pretend that love doesn't matter but it's all you think about she argues that is not true but he knows that she's never been in love jane has a feeling that they've met before and he changes the subject to her longtime struggles things haven't always been easy for you huh jane sighs everyone has problems and we all trip up along the way sure everyone has problems but john feels that they perhaps have the exact same issues well yeah i mean yeah you are technically the same person. Jack meets up with Robertson after what for him has been a long time but Robertson coolly says, perhaps from his perspective. Jack didn't think that he did jumps anymore, but Robertson says only on special occasions. He hands over the piece of the bomber's timer and Jack is scolded for doing an illegal jump. That's a serious offense, but to Jack it didn't matter. He had to try again, even if he was still unable to apprehend the killer. Robertson warns of his temporal impact there's only so much that they can repair, plus the toll on him mentally. The onset of psychosis and dementia, as we know, is is quite serious. He asks how many illegal jumps he's done and Jack claims that it's just the one and he is willing to accept punishment. He reiterates that the parameters exist for their own protection but he also always thought that they could accomplish so much more without the board controlling everything. An agent operating from the outside. Clearly what his intentions with Jack are. Though he's not even that mad you know. He's like yeah don't do the illegal jumps but also maybe it was a good idea. He is hesitant about the next part of the mission moaning that she will go through so much pain because of what he does. Robertson plainly states it's the way it happens. Has to be and always is he should understand that better than anybody jack scoffs the snake that eats its tail forever and ever he still doesn't think that he can do it and Robertson tries to get him to understand his importance he's more than an agent he's a gift given to the world through a predestination paradox we got a title line woohoo the only one free from history or ancestry and jack interjects the rooster calling back to that which came first thing it would be the rooster even though it's still a paradox Robertson stresses that he must complete his mission to lay the seeds for the future they're counting on him to do what must be done. Jack is perplexed. What happens when the day comes that he no longer has knowledge of his future? Robertson supposes, well, then you'll have to be like everyone else and take things one day at a time. Robertson leaves him alone with his thoughts and Jack appears forlorn, but he does go forward with the mission, donning black gloves and descending upon a nursery, understanding he was the one that took Jane the baby. He's not done with her yet and time hops to 20 years earlier, making sure to cover the eyes with a binky first. He continues via narration that preparation is the key to success inconspicuous time travel. Luck is the residue of design. Make sure to keep it simple and blend in. He then takes the baby to the orphanage and drops it at the steps, telling Jane to have a safe journey and for John to stay strong. They have a bright future ahead of them. Whoa, getting real trippy out here now. He next jumps back to 1963 and comes to John and Jane sitting together on a bench. Uh-oh, while well, we know where this is going, John turns back and seems to make eye contact and whispers for Jane to stay here, promising he'll be right back. He pulls his gun on Jack, accusing him of tricking him. He puts the responsibility on him. This was his choice, and John refuses to leave her. Jack apologizes if he feels deceived, but as he said, some things are inevitable. John moans that he loves her, and he warmly says, I know. Now that you've found her, you know who she is, and you understand who you are, meaning he was the one that ruined his life in the first place thanks to falling in love with himself. Whoa. He asks him to take comfort in the fact that things are happening in the correct order. This path will lead to your destination. He still doesn't want to leave Jane, but wants to know where that path Lees. And Jack pleads to just let me take you to Robertson who will show you everything. They blip to 1985 and Jack says that his troubles are over now. He's going to go on to save billions of lives with his important job. And guys take John to bed to recover after such a big jump. And Jack is confident he's gonna do great. The intention was that for John to want this, his life had to be completely fouled up. Only then could he achieve so much. Hundreds of crimes didn't go as planned because of him and his work as an agent. But the bomber is still out there. Although they know he made the better agents. The organization would not have grown if not for Fizzle appearing. He seems to think Robertson admires him in a way, but he says nothing is that simple, and hands over an envelope. Thanks to the timer, they have some new leads on the killer. When he reaches his final destination, his field kit will decommission as per regulation, but he wants to make sure that Jack wants to retire in York at a time so close to that biggest blast. He's certain, and Robertson gives him a courteous goodbye, telling him to take care of himself. At the bar, the patron is actually playing the I Am My Own grandpa song. Yep, it's real apparently. Jack pops in quickly to snatch a bottle of booze on the way out. He then jumps to 1975, setting up in a much more luxurious apartment. He cracks open the hooch and stares to his kit. He gives it a toast and clicks the button, the readout now spelling decommissioned. He sighs, welcome home, and takes a drink, but not so fast. The numbers on the case spin again to read fail error. He's all hold your horses and opens the envelope from Robertson. It's more clues telling him to track down the purchase order for the parts. On the recording, Jack cites another earlier moment about the first mission being just as important in the last and how they were bored for this. As John is then prepped for his first mission, Robertson handing over his field kit. At a random antique store, Jack gets sentimental about the past when noticing a typewriter. The shop owner, Alice, approaches asking if he's a writer. He says he used to be, but is thinking about taking it up again, and says that he mostly writes confession stories. Alice is surprised to hear that. He looks like an adventure and romance with a big splash of murder kind of guy. Well, she's right about that. That's stupid, right? And she says it's not, and it's never too late to be who you might have been. Jack goes on to write a whole-ass book entitled Time, Love, and the Unmarried Mother. He then returns to the case, poring over the evidence adorning his walls. Overlaid our previous pivotal conversations, many stressing the toll that too many jumps can take, and how Jack has more time in the field than anyone else. We know this leads to psychosis and dementia, and the whole snake forever eating its own tail thing. Jack is positive that he knows where he came from, but where do all you zombies come from? Name of the original novella and direct quote from it, nice. Double, double trouble there. He grabs a piece and jumps to a rundown laundromat. One man is there all by his lonesome, reading the ubiquitous confession magazine. He spins back, seeing it's a slightly older Jack, now sporting a mangy beard and long hair. Oh my god, he mutters. You look good, he tells his younger self. I've missed you. Jack is flabbergasted. You're the fizzle bomber? And he laughs. You always hated that name, remember? He decries that he's a murderer, but older Jack argues that he's saved more lives than he ever could have at the bureau. He shows off clippings from future tragedies that never happened because he personally prevented them. Jack is curious if he also counts those civilian lives amongst those, and older Jack knows that he's disappointed in him. He remembers that much, at least. But he is confident when things shake out, he'll know that we did the right thing. Jack gravely states he will never become him. And Jack wants to know if he reported that faulty field kit of his that didn't actually decommission. Clearly he did not, and the implication is that Jack would continue to use it in secret to hop throughout time to prevent these tragedies, but ultimately succumb to the effects of too many jumps. Made him go nuts, and here he sounds more like John when we first met him, thinking of killing some to prove a greater point, and also that whole superiority thing. It's like this side of his personality took over after too many trips, and thus he resulted in the creation of the Fizzle Bomber that has consumed Jack. Of course, they are one and the same. Older Jack tries to convince his younger self to join his side. I made you who you are, and you made me who I am. Now that he's found him, they can be together. He reiterates, he will never become him. And Older Jack lays out the truth. They are all just puppets set into motion by Robertson. He played them all for fools and set them up like dominoes to watch them fall. He still refuses to let this be his fate. And Older Jack is agitated. You're really gonna spend the rest of your days with Alice from the Antique Store and her stupid cat? He knows that kind of simple setup is not for them. Jack contends that he has no idea what's right for him, while his other half says, all we have is each other. That's all we've ever had. He lays out the situation clearly. If he does shoot him, he will ultimately become him. It's this moment that causes it to happen. So in order to break the chain, he has to learn to love him again. And his words echo in his head about putting the man that ruined your life in front of you. Could you do it? Older Jack gets excited, asking, want to know what they're going to do tomorrow? No, Jack says gruffly and unloads into his future self. The tape machine continues back with John, just starting their career as an agent. You're at the beginning of a new life, and knows that it can be overwhelming, knowing the future you're about to create and the purpose of that life. Now that he knows and understands who Jane is, perhaps he's ready to see who he is, and that he loves her just as much. Jack rises from his typewriter, seeing very distinct scars, the exact same that matched with Jane after her surgery. And to make the connection abundantly clear, we flash through Jane's life, starting as a baby being dropped off, and then growing up and onto becoming John. Then when trying to dismantle the bomb, John wound up being disfigured and as was told by the doctor would look different now. Meaning his new appearance is actually that of Jack's. Also meaning that everyone we've seen is bizarrely actually the same paradoxical being completely influenced by happenstance and timeline interference. So much for those parameters, huh? Jeez. With Jack after his retirement, there's another clipping about a bomber related attack. When will he strike again? He narrates that they have to make tough choices in the name of influencing the past, but can we change the future? He doesn't know, but one thing is for sure. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I miss you dreadfully. He then stares intently at his violin case before turning up to us. When we consider what comes next, it really feels like Jack is going to fall right back into that trap of inevitability. He had the chance to truly retire. He could have, as older Jack suggested, grow old with Alice and her cat. The problem is that after taking out the bomber, he lost the most important driving force of his being, having a purpose. This is what compels them above all else, above love and everything. Despite, as they also say, that love can be a purpose itself. But it's not for them. We see the sheer insanity of hoops they are willing to jump through to get to this point. This is why Jack most likely ultimately succumbs to this fault of his character and continues traveling through time to stop more attacks, but also, in the process, fulfills his unfortunate future of becoming the bomber. It's all a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, and it does appear impossible to escape what has already been set up. This takes us back to the real puppet master at work here, Robertson. Sure, there's a the whole council and all that, But Robertson obviously has his own irons in the fire, so to speak. I mean, they make it very clear about not leaving an impact, or talking to people in the past, all that jazz. And then simultaneously send Jack on a mission to recruit his former self, then fall in love with his female incarnation. I mean, you can't get any messier than that when it comes to mucking with time. So at least to Robertson, those parameters are not the end-all be-all. It really feels as though his grander intention is to purposefully tamper with time and see what he can manifest for his own gain. I mean, there's even ten other agents, and we don't know what the heck they're up to. Who knows, really. At least with Jack, it's clear that he orchestrated this paradox, and as a result was able to create a super intelligent and super strong being, as well as one without family ties or a past. This is what propels them to be even more driven by their work, as it's all they have. Hence all the trauma and suffering in their life as well. It creates that drive and need for purpose within them. In a way, he created the perfect soldier to do his bidding. That, to me, is the real gut punch of our protagonist's journey. All this was just for someone else's purpose. This goes even further, as I'm sure Robertson was also aware that Jack went on to become the bomber. They even say that thanks to the Fizzler surfacing, the agency has gotten better at their work. Once more, this is all to Robertson's benefit, he can dangle some crumbs to Jack along the way to keep him going in his search, all while fully knowing how things will turn out. Yet it begs the bigger question looming over the story. How would any of this work in the first place? Isn't it just one big paradox? Yes, that's kind of the whole point. Obviously, when it comes to the idea of time travel, there are many different theories on how it might work. When it comes to this story, let's look at a paradox in its simplest form. For example, someone in the present day takes beethoven's music and travels back to his time and calls themselves by that name so technically the work never existed in the first place they actually brought it back from the future how does that work that's why it's a paradox this story's intentions feel like to push that concept to the absolute limit there is no beginning or an end it's a never-ending cycle the chicken and the egg or the snake forever eating its tail is all one big interconnected loop that none of us humans could truly ever comprehend it's just too big with that we reach the conclusion for this in-depth explain video on predestination phew time travel stuff always makes my head hurt damn paradoxes and don't forget before we go you can send me requests for any movies or tv shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at foundflix what do you all think of predestination and its ending where do you see things going next can you change the past and the future let me know your thoughts down in the comments below make sure to like subscribe and follow thanks for watching foundflix see you next time